Hey, this is Jen Maxfield. I hope you're having a wonderful summer. The More After the Break podcast has been on hold these last two months as I went on my More After the Break book tour from California to Massachusetts, Rhode Island to Florida, and from Maine to my home state of New Jersey. I have met hundreds of readers who are interested and engaged in my book and the stories of hope and inspiration and resilience of the 10 people I feature and more after the break. So for this first episode back from my book release hiatus, I'm taking you inside one of my 18 book events. This is just last week in Coral Gables, Florida at Books and Books. This is an incredible independent bookstore in the Miami area. We're going to be running the full audio from that event, which includes questions from moderator Caroline Coles and questions from the audience and, of course, my answers. Now, you'll hear me explain when I introduce her at the event, but Caroline was one of my star students at Columbia Journalism School, where I serve as an adjunct professor, and she's now a morning anchor for the ABC affiliate in West Palm Beach, Florida. Now, you may notice that my voice on the recording sounds a little different than usual. I was getting over a minor cold, and I do sound a bit hoarse. I'm feeling fine, though, and I'm very grateful for the warm reception that my book and the concept of returning to the people at the center of major news stories has received. So here it is. Not only do I want to thank Jack, but also the staff at Books and Books. Independent bookstores are so important to communities, and I do feel very honored to be included in in the panel of authors who have come through this incredible store. And I also want to thank everyone who's here tonight. I have some longtime friends who are here. My husband, Scott, is here and uh, and some new friends, too. And I, I'm so thankful for everyone coming out and taking an interest in the book and in journalism and in local news. And so I really appreciate everybody being here tonight. And I can't say enough how happy I am that I'm here on this stage with Caroline Coles. Uh, To give a little bit of background, Caroline was a student of mine at Columbia Journalism School, where I serve as an adjunct professor. And she also was a newsroom intern for NBC New York. And if you want to know a little bit about Caroline's level of motivation, (laughs) Caroline was interning while a student at Columbia Journalism School. She interned on Sunday evening. She would come in around 2 and leave at around 11 p.m. or midnight. And it didn't take me very long to figure out that, number one, she had incredible enthusiasm and motivation and drive. And it really is a proud professor moment for me right now to be interviewed here by a, a former student of mine who's now doing incredible things for the ABC station in West Palm. So um, again, a special night for me all around, and I'm so glad you're all here to share it with me. So I'm going to turn it over to Caroline. Hello, everyone. First of all, I just want to say good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out. Good evening to Jen. Thank you so much for having me. Jen is probably one of my favorite people in the industry. I have been super blessed to work with great journalists. Jen stands out just because those who know Jen, Jen is just an incredible and amazing person, a great journalist. 
I have known Jen since I was a student at Columbia 2017, and she feels like it's a pleasure for her to be here with me, but I feel like it's a pleasure for me to be here with Jen. Jen has taken me under her wings from, you know, interning with you to just, you know, you being my professor. I am so grateful for all the wisdom that you've imparted in me. And so when you told me that you were writing a book, I was like, OMG, like, this is going to be a bomb book. And it is. So for those of you who are not super privy about what Jen's book is about, Jen, I'd love for you just to kind of walk us through more after the break. I love the title. It explains literally more after the break. It explains, you know, what our industry is about. How did you get the idea to come up with this book? So I think it's uh, it's helpful to start by just giving an overview about what we do in local news and what reporters like Caroline and I do as part of our work. So a typical day for us starts with we pitch some stories to the newsroom. There may be some stories that we must cover, something like a primary or perhaps a storm, the aftermath of something that happened. And then throughout the day, our plans could be changing and we could wind up being diverted to breaking news. So story A that we think we're doing at 9.30 in the morning could turn into story B or C by 2 in the afternoon. But the critical part of this equation is that very rarely does the story extend beyond that 4, 5, or 6 o'clock live shot that we're doing on any given day. So I estimate that over the last 22 years, I've interviewed more than 10,000 people for stories on the news, for all of these stories that and, and this relentless cycle of covering news every day in this manner. But there were certain people and certain families and certain situations that stuck with me for years or even decades after that live truck pulled away from the scene and after their names faded from the headlines. And this book is really is born out of my genuine curiosity about what happened to those people that I never stopped thinking about. Those people whose living rooms I sat in, the people who I approached with a microphone on what might have been the worst day of their life, the most tumultuous day of their life. And they not only invited me into their homes, they invited me into their lives, and significantly, they trusted me. They trusted me with their story and to get that story out to the community. So it's been so rewarding to go back to the 10 stories that are featured in this book, because in many ways, the people who I talk about are, are trusting me a second time now with their stories. And, and I hope that when people read the book, that not only are you inspired by the people who I return to, but also that you get a greater appreciation for what it's like being a news reporter and being adjacent to so much tragedy and chaos. Because those microphones that you see at the bottom of the news screen, when you see the person being interviewed and you see the microphone in their face, those, those are being held by a human being. And, and we are impacted by these stories too, and these stories change us. And I don't think that most books about journalism and about news stories talk enough about that. Speaking of being impacted by some of the stories that you had included in the book, how do you perfect your mental health when covering the stories that you've covered? Just to give people who have not read Jen's book, I mean, you cover a story about a young man in his 20s who lost both of his legs in a ferry crash. You talk about a young lady who almost died from her abusive boyfriend at the time. I mean, you just cover some stories where people 
have gone through so many different trials and tribulations. It's almost like as a reporter, sometimes we take on, you know, the emotional aspect of that person when we're interviewing them. And it's, it's hard to just go home and forget about the story. So how have you dealt with just protecting your mindset and your mental health when covering these super tough emotional stories? Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. And, and I mean, I would just start by saying we don't interview celebrities the people who we are interviewing on the news, they didn't ask to be in the spotlight. They didn't want this. They were thrust into it due to circumstances beyond their control. And so to your question about mental health and protecting my own, look, part of it is I am not the story. And I feel that whatever I am feeling on these days, and I am feeling a lot, um, I switch to waterproof mascara. Oh. Because sometimes I will cry when someone's telling us a story. I mean, it's awful sometimes what's happened to somebody. But for me, I feel that, look, my own emotions about it certainly pale in comparison to the people who are all experiencing it. And also, I don't want to be the story and I don't want to be a distraction. So if I'm doing a live shot and I'm blubbering about something that's happened, that's not helpful for the viewer to actually absorb the impact of what happened in that story. But on the other hand, I am a human being and I do care deeply about the people I interview. And sometimes it may be as simple as when I get home and I want to have dinner with my husband and our three kids, I need to put my work phone on the charger and not look at it. And sometimes it might be that after a really emotional interview, I need to go for a walk around the block or call my sister or my mom and I do and talk and not talk about the interview, just talk about something else. And I think that over the years, that's been important. And I would also say that this book was incredibly helpful to me on an emotional level, because I do think that sometimes when we cover these stories, and, and there's a great quote, and the quote is, news is the first rough draft of mm -hmm. history. And we are writing that first rough draft, and it's pretty rough. And, and sometimes we only have a couple hours to put it together. Mostly, we only have a couple hours to put it together. But the benefit of going back to these stories that I never forgot was it gave me the context and, and really a greater impact on what these stories had. And whether it was a family who was able to get legislation pushed through to honor their loved one, to make sure another family didn't have to experience that, or just somebody finding happiness. Again, That that's really significant to me. And I think it's given me a greater perspective and has made me feel in many ways, the, the rewarding aspect of our work where it's not over the day the live broadcast goes out. The, these stories continue for the families and, and we do play a role. So it's really given me a greater sense of purpose about the importance of what we do. I asked that question because... I've been in the industry for about five years now, and, you know, my family lives in Parkland. My brother was a student at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High um, when the shooting happened. And as a reporter anchor in West Palm Beach, I have been covering the Nicholas Cruz sentencing trial a lot lately. And it hasn't been easy. You know, it hasn't been easy. Um, obviously, I have a lot of opinions, a lot of thoughts, and it's been a struggle ch chilling, you know, my personal bias from the story and it's like years later, you want to move on from it. And obviously my story does not relate to, you know, the victims, families and the victims, unfortunately, who lost their life that day. But, you know, it's still it lingers. And I want to just move on. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to report on it. I want to be done with it. I don't want to think about it. But 
it's a part of what I do in the industry. And so I ask that just for, for me as well to learn from you in terms of, you know, how do you compartmentalize your emotions with protecting your mental health? So thank you for answering that. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sorry your brother was there and I'm sure yeah. it is really hard right. to cover that. And I mean, I was out with some friends who are national correspondents recently and one of the women had gone from Buffalo to Uvalde mm. to Chicago Oof. or the, the suburb of Chicago right. where the shooting happened there, Highland Park. And I mean, the same person and the same photographers That's were at all three of those events. And I, I think that news organizations need to take a hard look at how we're assigning people to I do agree. stories like that. I think yeah. it's a lot for any one it person. Is. I want to talk to you about when you revisited the people that you did in your book, were you scared of their reaction in terms of going back to asking those hard-hitting questions? You interviewed them years ago. I mean, I think there was one family that you interviewed. They lost their son in a terrorist attack in New York City. I can only imagine how difficult that interview was. Were you nervous about going back to them years later and saying, hey, I want to open that wound again and talk to you some more about what was that like? I wasn't really sure what to expect. So of the 10 families, uh, the most recent one is from a story that aired four years ago. And another family, two gentlemen who are featured in Chapter 8, um, I started reporting on them back in 1999 when I was still a grad student at Columbia Journalism. And so I did go into those asks with a degree of humility. Um, I wasn't sure if I owed some of these families an apology, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was not expecting to be greeted with open arms. Uh, I also wondered if some of the families regretted, frankly, opening the door to me and putting their lives on television and having that out there for everyone to see. But the conversations I had with the 10 families who were featured in the book, they were complicated, but they were ultimately reassuring. And I think a lot of that, again, as I was describing before, the fact that so much of substance has happened for these families since the initial incident that landed them on the news, I think many of them feel that by putting their story out there and by talking about what happened to them, that they actually open themselves up to a lot of support from the community, whether it was people donating to a GoFundMe site or families visiting a family who'd lost somebody or going to the wake or just writing a card and offering support for someone else in the community. And I think that had they not shared their story on the news, that wouldn't have happened. There also is a greater sense when we do go knocking on people's doors to mm -hmm. ask them to interview with us. People understand that they're creating their person's legacy and that when they don't talk to us, that typically a less accurate story gets out there. Right. I feel like as I was going through your book, reading it, one of the things I love about the book is, yes, it walks people through the life of a reporter, what we do, how our day starts. But I mean, if you just want to be encouraged, inspired by just everyday stories, like I said, stories of trials and tribulations, tough stories, things that people just, the unimaginable, you just question like, wow, like how are they still living today? I think for me, it allowed me to have, just to be grateful for what I have in life, right? I mean, here it is, I'm complaining about working a 10 hour shift or complaining about whatever, the person that cut me off while I'm driving, but there's a person that lost two of their legs 
and has to, you know, basically live in a wheelchair for the rest of their life. So for you writing the book, revisiting these stories, was it almost like a humbling experience, just a time for you to say, wow, like I am blessed and I'm just so grateful for everything that I have. Yes. And I think that reporting news generally for the last 22 years has made me very thankful yes. for the blessings of my life and, and very quick to forgive mm-hmm. because again, people don't ask to be in these situations mm-hmm. and things can happen and no day is promised. And so I do think it's given me a greater perspective on that. Yes. And, and look, I wrote this book during COVID. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of fear and, and, you know, unease about what was happening. And so for me, you know, in between Scott and I making sure that our kids got to their school Zooms on time and wiping down the groceries with Lysol wipes and whatever else we were doing at that time, it was reassuring and comforting for me, frankly, to be talking to these families who had experienced adversity in a number of different forms and hearing about the way that they made it through and how they're thriving today. And I think that that's really the upshot of the book for readers. I mean, look, I I was at a Barnes and Noble uh, by the by the Jersey Shore, and I they displayed my book in the current events section, and I found it very interesting that of the probably fifteen to twenty books displayed in the current events section, that my book was the only one that was not about Trump, Biden, or January sixth. And I'm not suggesting that those other topics are not important. They are. But is that all there is to journalism? I feel that a lot of what we do are stories about people and communities and how people come together. And it was really joyful for me in the end to write about the way that communities come together and the way that people help each other. I mean, the quote we have on the cover of the book is from my first mentor in news, Gary Tuckman, who's currently a national correspondent for CNN. And he wrote, more after the break strengthens your faith in humanity. And I hope that you feel that when you read it. And I hope that you're inspired by the people who are featured in the book. Okay, speaking of being inspired, was there one chapter or one person, one character in the event that you felt like you related to or, you know, a story that you felt like really resonated with you as a person or as a journalist? It's so hard to choose one. Mm -hmm. It was really hard to choose 10. So I didn't, I, well, really, again, it, it was born out of genuine curiosity. I mean, I would still dream about some of these stories. If you want to know how deep in my subconscious these people and these stories were. So I really just started from who am I still thinking about? Who's still on my mind? Whose neighborhood do I drive past? And I remember that I interviewed them on that corner. And so in order to find the 10 people, though, it wasn't very easy, um, this is, this is not a comment for people in your generation, but when I started out in news, we were still using phone books and <laughs> we didn't have GPS and we had a milk carton full of map books that we would use to wow. try to find where we were going. So you can imagine some of these stories that I had to stretch back a little further. It wasn't so easy to find the people. In some cases, in one chapter, I was looking for a girl who was five when I first interviewed her. Now, how do you find a child? Uh, The answer is I went through her grandfather, but I went through all different methods to try to find the people. Some people I was not able to locate. Some people did say no. Um, But yes, the most unusual way I got a family to agree to speak with me was a family I'd interviewed for Hurricane Sandy 
and they had lost their home. And I had interviewed them soon after that in Staten Island. And I had messaged them on Facebook. It wasn't a particularly controversial story per se. So it was kind of hard for me to believe that they wouldn't talk to me again. So I thought maybe they're just not seeing my messages. So I Googled them and it turned out that they were having a baby. So they had a baby registry that was available online. So I sent them a small gift from the registry. I figured, well, I know they'll read that card. And uh, in it, I said, I said, oh, you know, congrats on the new baby. I'm writing a book. Uh, can you call me? Remember me? Jen. And so they they did of call Of course me. they responded to that. <laughs> so they did remember me and, and they're featured in chapter two. So was there a story that you've covered in your 20 plus years of experience that you really wanted incorporated into this book, but for whatever reason they, you know, they didn't want to be a part of it? Yes. What was it? Uh, okay, so in New York and New Jersey back in 2016, there were several bombs that were placed in trash cans, and it was awful. A couple of them went off, and people were really badly hurt. And the reason that there weren't more people hurt or more people killed was because of two men in Elizabeth, New Jersey, who were homeless at the time. And they were walking past a garbage can at the commuter rail station. And one of the men had a job interview the next day and spotted this black backpack and thought, oh, that'll be perfect for my job interview tomorrow. And he unzipped it and a number of wires started spilling out of it. And the other gentleman who was a military veteran said, that's a bomb and we need to call 911. And they did. And the police detonated it. And it was it, all, many, many lives were saved by those two men. They were given the key to the city. They both found permanent housing and they both got jobs. And one of those men has since passed away, but Lee Parker is still with us. And I looked for him for months. And last I knew he was in Philadelphia. He had a job with a dairy company in Newark, but uh, he had moved on from that. And I just would have loved to have told that story about what happened to this man who was struggling and did this heroic act and what happens to someone whose life trajectory changes in a positive way because of a, a way he helped his community. I'm hoping that perhaps someone will hear me talk about him and direct me to him, but I was not able to find Part him. Part two. I can ask questions all day. Do you want me to keep asking? Do you want to take questions Let's hear from, from the, the audience public, too. Or? So Jose's question is about how do you tell your own story when you're so used to telling other people's and what was that like, including my own reflections? I have a post-it note on my computer at home that lives there to this day, which says out of comfort zone. And that was really my mantra for writing this book was to get outside my comfort zone. And my comfort zone was talking about other people's stories, telling you about what happened to somebody else and almost erasing myself from that narrative, which is fine to an extent and it's appropriate in a day of air news story. But I don't really think we're telling the full story, especially when you have 250 plus pages to do it in. If I'm not saying how these stories change me, because they do. We're not a neutral medium, right? I mean, the information may flow through us, but we are changed by it. And so it, it was stepping outside my own comfort zone. Frankly, it felt indulgent to be writing about myself uh, in these stories. But I do feel that there's value in it. And, and the other thing I've heard from readers is that they didn't really understand even how this job works. I mean, you turn on the TV or you click on a story in your Twitter feed 
and and you may see the interviews that we procured, but you may not really know how that happened and how you know the person behind those efforts to get these stories on the air. So I, I hope that journalists and photographers, you know, reporters and photographers feel seen and, and feel that their story is being told in this too. Okay, so the question, I, I'm repeating the questions for our podcast audience. Uh, so the question pertains to, we do have a lot of student journalists here tonight. I'm so happy to see all of you. Thank you for coming. Um, what advice would I have for budding journalists and also what skills might you work on now that will serve you well later in your careers? And I'd love to hear Caroline answer this question too. Um, so the first thing I would say is I did, my career in journalism started in high school. I wrote for Echo, the newspaper for Tetafly High School, and then I wrote for the Columbia Daily Spectator at Columbia. And I do think that student journalism is an incredible place to start. I think that you learn to write, you learn to interview, you learn to write on deadline. And I would also say that certainly the skills that have served me really well throughout is going in, you know, natural curiosity, which I'm sure you have if you've um, already been drawn to this in high school, uh, compassion and empathy for your subjects, which I think is always really important, and an open mind, not going into interviews thinking that you know what people are going to say, not assuming things about people, and really being open to learn, um, sort of a beginner's mind, which is something we talk a lot about at Columbia. I know I have some other Columbia alumni friends here tonight. Um, and the only other thing before Caroline answers this question too, I, I feel that it's really important to talk about the struggle in getting to this place. I mean, uh, Jack read a beautiful introduction before about that I've won an MB and I've been in news for more than two decades and I'm a professor at Columbia and that's all great. But I do want to take a quick rewind for the students in the audience and tell you a little story about the spring of 2000 when I was graduating from Columbia Journalism School. And again, I'm dating myself here, but I sent out 65 VHS resume tapes. They were actually physical tapes that I mailed out. I made copies 65 times and then mailed them out to news stations around the country to news directors. And I had my name and my email and my cell phone number on it. And I just waited for the calls to roll in and the emails. Mm -hmm. And do you know how many calls and emails I got on that first resume tape? Zero, not one, not a single news director was interested in having me work for their station. And I was really upset and frustrated. And I spoke with a friend of mine from Columbia who's a couple years older. And she said, just do a road trip, get in your car, drive to where you want to go and call the news director and ask for five minutes of their time. And that's exactly what I did. And that's how I got my first job in Binghamton, New York. But I tell you this story again, because it's easy to list the accomplishments, but it's also really important to talk about the struggle and the failures and the many, many decisions and, and the really the courage it takes to do this job or whatever job you do, your people are going to tell you no. People tell me no all the time. And even writing this book, it in some ways it felt like I was back in the year 2000 with whether it was a bookstore that didn't want to do an event or an editor that wasn't interested in working with me or an agent who ghosted me. I mean, I'm so used to it at this point 
that if somebody is not telling me no about something, I feel like I'm not working hard enough and I'm not pushing myself hard enough and I'm not doing interesting enough things. So please don't be deterred by other people telling you no. Figure out your goal and go for it. I think the biggest thing is you have to have a deep sense of curiosity for what's going on in your surroundings. So I guess you could say that's code for being nosy. Okay. It's so funny because, you know, like with my friends, family, dating, whatever, like I will ask a gazillion questions. And I always tell people like, I'm not nosy. It's just like my job as a journalist just to get to the bottom of things. So I think you have to really want to know like what's going on around you. You have to be educated. You have to know your current events, all of job, all of the jobs that I've applied for news directors, bosses, they'll ask you what's going on around you internationally, nationally. So I think it's important that, you know, you study the news, you're aware of what's going on around you. And also I think it's so vital to be a people's person. A lot of what we do, we're going into foreign environments, we're interviewing random people and people have to feel like they can trust you. People have to feel like you're a likable person because a lot of it is just them looking at you and saying, okay, is this a likable person? Do I feel comfortable enough to share my story? Um, and I think that that's why Jen is such a successful journalist myself is the fact that we're just people's people. We can talk to anybody. So I think that's a big thing. You have to have your own personality and internships. That's so vital. That's how I met Jen. You know, Jen's been extremely instrumental with, you know, me getting my first job. She wrote my recommendations. She continues to give me great advice as, you know, I negotiate jobs. And so I think you're never too young to get an internship. I was 17 or 18 when I got my first internship. My first internship was with Ann Curry at NBC News. And so, you know, I don't say that to brag, but ever since I was 17 or 18, I was interning. And so I just think it's so important whether, you know, you're interning, you know, at your, I don't know if your school has like a, a yearbook department, you know, you work with that or you're doing the announcements. Like I was that girl that would get up and do the morning announcements because that's what I love to do and really helped, you know, get to where I am. And also I think it's just so important to, you know, hone your public speaking skills. So start thinking about extracurricular activities that you want to do when you're a student in college. I went to Howard University when I was there. I was that student that was giving tours to students on campus, but, you know, it taught me how to talk to random people that I didn't know, you know, it helped me to, you know, to work on my speaking skills. So I think it's so important that, you know, you're taking advantage of everything that, you know, you possibly can, everything that can make you a brighter person. I think that that's just so important when it comes to, excelling in the industry of journalism so yeah so I think we have time for one or two more questions oh yay a question from one of our students okay great thank you what's your name Sarah, Sarah that's a great question uh, so the question is about unbiased news and the uh, obviously aspiring to unbiased news but some of the issues now with credibility and sourcing and how you know, how you, it, it sounds like the question also is how can you distinguish really between real and fake news and, and how does, how do some of these other outlets impact the credibility of journalists like us? Is that right? Okay. Thank you for the question. Um, that is, that is certainly a real concern. And I think that media literacy is really important. Um, are, do they teach you that in your school? Is that part of your curriculum? Right. So just being able to distinguish, because let's face it, this is a growing issue. It's only going to get more challenging to distinguish between real news and fake news because of the technology. 
I mean, if people are familiar with some of these deep fake videos, it's very scary what you can actually do in order to doctor a video to make it look real. And so I think that it's really incumbent on news organizations like the ones we work for to not only tell accurate stories, but I think it's also really helpful to tell people how we put together these stories. I mean, my book gets into some of the behind the scenes aspects of news reporting. I do wonder sometimes if it would be helpful for the general public. Maybe you have the one news story and then you have a sidebar of how did this story get put together? Because I think that adds credibility too. And I think that the younger generation really values authenticity and they expect it because they've grown up on camera, on social media, on YouTube. But yes, I I do think that this is a really important issue going forward. And as far as unbiased news, I think that that's also uh, a really important issue and and something that news organizations need to be looking at and, and considering, are they serving the public? There was a part in your book, Tamika, not to give too much away because I know we're all going to read the book after this. Uh, There was a part of your book where you interviewed Tamika, who is a domestic violence. She's still living. And she was stabbed by her boyfriend. And I remember you went to her bedside at the hospital and you interviewed her. Some would look at you and be like, is she crazy? Like trying to interview this woman after she almost faced death. What was it like interviewing her? And did you feel like you were out of place being at her hospital bed? I think it was like three days after, three days after she had went through that horrific experience. Did you feel out of place or uncomfortable being there? Yes. Uh, So Tamika Tompkins is a domestic violence survivor and is featured in chapter five of the book. And, um, I should note that we were invited right. to uh, interview her. Yes. The the family had called, uh, there was a tip that was called into our newsroom about this woman who had been stabbed by her ex against whom she had a restraining order and that she wanted to be interviewed. And I I talked to Tamika all the time and I I tell her frequently that she's, first of all, I think she's a very brave person. Number one, to have invited me into her hospital room that day to share her story with the broader community. And number two, to continue telling it. And in fact, Tamika and I are going to be doing some of that. We have already done some book events together, and she and I are going to continue this fall going out in support of some organizations that support families who've been victims of domestic violence. And so it's very important for her to be putting her story out there to the public because the reason she did invite me into her hospital room that day was because she did not want anyone else to go through this. And she wanted to have people look at her and listen to her and get out of those relationships before that happened to them. And I just think that's an incredibly brave and selfless act. And I really admire her. And um, yes, I, I and actually going back to Tamika for the book, I, she was one of those people where I wondered, do I owe her an apology? Does she regret speaking with me? I mean, she had family members in there, but I mean, she was on medication. And so there really was that moment where I thought, is she sure she wants to be doing this? And, um, that was one of those conversations that ultimately proved reassuring because she does feel such a sense of mission and purpose in having this platform now through the book 
to be able to go out there and speak with organizations about this really important issue of domestic violence. That's one thing that I love about what we do is, you know, we can only do but so much. If someone's facing, you know, eviction, we can't write them a check for $5,000, but we can give them a platform to tell their story and talk about how they're suffering and, you know, why, you know, housing rules need to change. But is there anything in terms of what you're hoping, what people can take away from your book when they're reading your book? What are you hoping that they can take away when reading it? So I, I hope that people really take away from it the triumph of the human spirit, because that's what I took away from it, from writing it, is the way that people who do face adversity are able to not only get through it, but also thrive in the wake of it. And I also feel, as I said, we don't interview celebrities. I think that sometimes people feel as though they're invisible and maybe their struggles aren't spoken about enough, or maybe they think that we forget after those stories air on the news. And so I hope generally it just speaks to empathy and compassion in journalism and really the the humanism in our profession that is so critical to what we do. So we can take one more question from the audience and then we can sign some books. So the question from Andrea is, is journalism a type of activism? And I would have to say, I, I don't believe it's a form of activism because in, in my experience, when I hear the word activism, it feels to me like I'd be taking a position on something or trying to influence a certain outcome. So uh, I think that, as I said, I think you need to go into these stories with an open mind and not think that, you know, you know the outcome or you know what the outcome should be. Um, but as far, if there, if there was one form of activism in journalism, of course, I think it would be shining a light in dark spaces and I think it would also be giving a voice to people who may feel that they don't have the power or the platform to have that initially. So if we're, if we're activists for anything, I think it's giving people a voice. Awesome. Jenna Maxfield, everyone. Right, on that note, thank you so much. And, and I just hope you enjoy reading the book as much as I enjoyed writing it. So thank you again. And, and uh, I really appreciate everybody coming out. And thanks again to Books and Books for this event and also for being such an amazing institution in this community. Thank you.